into this passage in Romans 6. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a rich like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. My chains are gone, I have been set free. For God my Saviour has ransomed me. And so Lord, help us to know more deeply what it is that you have ransomed us from who we are, and to understand more wonderfully who we now are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And would that set us on a course for change, um, not for our sake, but for your sake, change that pleases you, so that you would get the glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there's a lot that is said about the topic of behavior modification. Um, we're always asking questions. How do we change? How do we grow? How do we improve as human beings? How is it done? And there are various theories out there, but basically I think it's fair to say that you could summarize them as the carrot or the stick. That's pretty much what it boils down to. How do you get the donkey to do what you want them to do? Either the carrot to entice them or the stick from behind to add impetus. So I remember the carrot approach when I was uh, studying for my board exam. It was a culmination of all of my years at university. Um, and then I was in my articles and this final goal, writing your board exam to become a qualified accountant. And it is a very painful process. It's a very big and intimidating exam. You start doing this course a few months in advance to prepare you on the back of your four years at university. And you're having to go through the pain barrier. You're working, but you're studying as well. And um, it requires basically sitting at a desk for the whole of your life uh, for that period of time. And they said to us in the board course, uh, first week, what you need to do to keep yourself motivated is, at your desk, the wall in front of you, cut out, take your favorite magazines, the ones that you kind of aspirational, and cut out photos of the things that you think that you want, and which if you pass this exam and your salary climbs as high as it's going to, going to you will be able to afford to buy. So uh, there's your, you know, whatever, your overseas travel, the, the house that you want to buy, whatever it is. Have these photos in front of you, and so when you're tempted to put your head down on the desk or to get up from the desk, you look at the photo, that's the carrot, keep going, study hard. You could get more sophisticated uh, versions than that, right? Um, but that's the one approach. Or the stick approach, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, or you do do something that you're not supposed to do, something nasty is going to be dished out to you, or something cherished is going to be removed. So in the stick scenario, you're motivated by the avoidance of pain. In the carrot scenario, you're motivated by something that you really, really want. And if you were to analyze parenting strategies, the way that schools are run, the way that corporations are run, the way things often work in our communities, how many of those strategies for getting people to do what you want them to do actually do rely on the carrot or the stick? And I would say the vast majority do. If you don't eat all of your vegetables, dot, dot, dot. Uh, if you do finish all of your homework, dot, dot, dot. It is so ingrained, and it has spilled into the way that we think about how we change and grow as Christians, as we try to live changed lives that are more pleasing to Jesus. There are the rewards. If you do well, you will have the approval of a Heavenly Father. That sense inside you that all is okay between me and God. Or the stick. Um, we're not saying you beat yourself like some kind of weird medieval monk. Um, 
love that kind of stick approach. But, but the idea that gets deeply ingrained into us is if you do well in your walk with Jesus, well then somehow um, he will have, you will have more of his approval. If you don't do well, then there should be insecurity and fear and no sense of well-being with God. What do you say to yourself when you sin? Well, often that will reflect what you think and whether you've adopted or imbibed the characteristic approach. What do you think, what do you say to yourself, what do you think God says to you when you sin? Because that will then in turn affect how you seek to change and grow. At first glance, when you look at verse 15, it seems to be the same question that we saw last week in verse 1, uh, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Uh, very similar to verse 1. Broadly, they're, they're asking the same question. They're both asking, what is the Christian's relationship to sin? Uh, because of this thing called grace, can we just go on sinning? But there's also a difference between the two questions, whereas last week the question was, can we go on sinning because God's got it covered at the end of the day? <coughs> well, this week it is, can we go on sinning because the law isn't there to stop us anymore? Uh, he's got Jewish believers in mind in particular. Uh, if we're released from the authority of the law, the law handed down to Moses, what is to stop our religion being a free-for-all? You just whip out your inexhaustible get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, this week, as last week, the answer is going to be to the question, can we live unchanged lives? Well, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, verse 19 is the only command in this section uh, worth dwelling on. For just as you presented, once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Again, pretty much the same command as last week. The command last week was in verse 13. Offer yourselves to God. Offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. And here He has upped the stakes, if you like. He's upped the language from offering yourself to God and being an instrument for God. Now He says, present your members, present yourself as a slave to God. And also he has given a different motivation. Uh, last week, negatively, the motivation was uh, you're no longer ruled by sin. You have died to sin. Uh, this week, it's a step on from that. Uh, the implications of that, because you're no longer ruled by sin, you're, you've died to sin, positively now, you are owned by God. He owns you. And so now, offer yourself to him. Serve him. Obey him. 100%. And so our first point uh, there on the sheets if you want to follow. God owns you, so you are not your own. And so are you starting to hear Paul's answer to the question of how we change? It's not the carrot or the stick. It is slavery. Uh, that might not warm your heart instantly. You might think, I'd rather have the carrot or the stick approach. But he's saying the way that you'll change and grow is to realize that you are a slave. And on the face of that, that's going to be a hard sell. It's hard to get excited about slavery. Uh, what are you selling, Paul? Well, I'm selling freedom from slavery to sin. And it's free. Cool. Thanks, Paul. I'll have some of that. Uh, anything else? Yes, I'm selling slavery to God. 
Slavery to righteousness, slavery to obedience. Hmm, maybe not that way. And so we need to see how is he going to convince us? Why is this a great thing that God owns us? And the, the ownership slave language starts in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin which leads to death or to obedience which leads to righteousness. And Paul's working on the principle that when you offer yourself to obey something or someone, you make yourself a slave to that thing. You are enslaved to it. I am a slave of the one that I actually obey. So a silly example, uh, maybe you're enslaved to home decorating, right? And you spend all your time on Pinterest, uh, you're browsing the shops in Woodstock and in Canal Walk, you spend a small fortune on imported fabrics for your new curtains, you're constantly redecorating your rooms. I'm obeying it with my time and my money and my brain space. I'm not actually the one in control. I think I'm making all of the decisions, but actually, I'm enslaved to it. Or you could be a slave to your appearance. I think I'm choosing to invest by training my body to fit the image that I want to, or spending the money on the clothes that are going to project the image I want. But when I offer myself to appearance, or to career, or to relationships, whatever it might be, it takes control of my money, of my time, of my attention, and then it controls me. It has me enslaved. I may call myself a slave of Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ, but if I actually give myself and my obedience to something or somebody else repeatedly and unrepentantly, if my life remains unchanged, then it shows that I am still a slave to sin. But then he goes on to say that there are only two possibilities for slavery. You can, you can mention any number of them, but in fact it gets reduced down to two possibilities. And you have to choose one of them. Uh, we think that, that we can be autonomous, we think that we can be slaves to, to no one, we can be in control of our lives. But as soon as I'm serving myself, well that is the essence of sin, I'm enslaved to it. Paul says there are two possible slave masters and you have to choose. If you have declared independence from God, that you're not a slave to Him, does that leave you in some kind of neutral zone, some kind of spiritual equivalent of Switzerland who didn't join either side in the war? No, if you are not enslaved to God, then you are <coughs> enslaved to sin. Uh, Bob Dylan sang the song, Gotta Serve Somebody, captures us brilliantly. Uh, you may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion, you might be living in a dome. You may own guns and you may even own tanks. You may be somebody's landlord, you may even own banks, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a preacher preaching spiritual pride. Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side. Maybe a barber, maybe working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Paul would agree with Bob Dylan. The only decision is, who will you serve? Choose your slave master. There is no fence position. Verse 16, you have to serve either sin or God. Now, even if you think you're free, 
I'm free to pursue the American dream, advancement and, and accumulation. That is just enslavement. You're spending your time, your money, your family, your youth. 70 hours a week. It's your choice, but you are not free. It's taken your whole life. And so Paul is pushing us in the direction, starting to ask, if that is the reality, there are two possible slaveries and you have to choose one, then why would you not choose to be a slave to the Lord Jesus? Why would you not choose that slavery? Because he goes on to say that through the gospel, if you are a Christian, well then you have been transferred from one slavery to another. You have changed your slave master. It has happened through the message of grace. You have been set free from one slavery to serve God, another form of slavery. Uh, verse 17 spells out the process. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And so when you submit to the gospel, that's what he means by the standard of teaching. He means the, the gospel teaching, that you're made right with God by the one act of obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you submit to the heart, to that from the heart, then that gospel belief is the means by which your slavery is transferred. Your faith unites you to Jesus, and you were transferred with him through death to life, from slavery to sin, to slavery with God. It happens when you obey the form of teaching, interesting phrase, to which you were entrusted. We might think Paul would say that the, to the standard of teaching, which was entrusted to you, the message was brought to you, was given to you. And he says, no, actually, you were entrusted to that teaching that you were placed in the care of, you were placed in the charge of, like being, I mean, we talk, you said, you, you, you're entrusted, you're committed to an asylum. This is, okay, it's not an asylum, maybe that's a bad analogy. But you are put in the care of and, and, and under the charge of this gospel teaching, which as you continue to hear it and it goes deeper into you, reminds you of the realities, of your new reality and the transfer that has taken place. Not condemned justified, not under the control of sin, free, not free for yourself, but free to obey Christ. It was done by God, it happened instantly, it was not gradual, a process you have to go through, you didn't have to initiate it, you were carried along for the ride like the baby in its mother's tummy. I guess many of us are used to hearing the biblical doctrine of redemption. And it's a powerful theme that runs all the way through the Bible and most notably kicks off in the book of Exodus. But you imagine yourself as a slave and you're oppressed and you're abused by sin and you're under its control. And then Jesus says, I, I would like to buy you back from that. I would like to buy him back. I would like to buy her back. And on the cross, he pays the infinite price. And we are set free to go where we want. But that's not the full picture here. And Jesus says, I would like to buy him. I would like to buy her. I give my life so that, not just that they are free, but so that they belong to me. And so that is the freedom. Not a freedom from being owned, but it is a freedom to be owned by someone else. 
except this slave owner, well, he is a gracious, loving and self-giving one. He wants only the best. He went to the cross. Don't think that that is a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now he is saying, yes, you are out of jail, but come over and live in my palace. Stop serving your previous owner. Now come and serve me. Uh, still, you might be saying to yourself, I, I'm really allergic to the language of slavery. How is that a motivation to change? It sounds far worse than the stick. At least with the stick, I guess I'm in charge. My behavior dictates the outcome. I can choose for myself to avoid the punishment or to take it. Slavery is worse, surely, isn't it? Because it infers that you're under the control of another. That conjures up all sorts of images of oppression uh, and abuse. But we have to say the first thing is that, that we're not free in the first place. We are in an oppressive, abusive relationship to sin in the first place. But then more than that, when Paul speaks and he uses that phrase in verse 18, slaves of righteousness, that is what we have become. He immediately qualifies that in verse 19 by saying, I'm putting this in human terms. He's saying, I'm using a metaphor. And the metaphor is not perfect in every way, but it is there to demonstrate the main point. And the main point is that the moment you come to Jesus, a transfer has taken place. You are no longer at that slavery, you are under another. But they are very, very different slaveries. We've been transferred from a cruel slavery to a gracious one. From a closed slavery to an open one. From a forced response to a free response. From a slavery that leads to death to a slavery that leads to life. This is a million miles away from oppression. It is about being free to serve God, which is true freedom, because now we are in our indigenous habitat, in relationship to Him. And so the command in verse 19 is the command to live then in line with that. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He's setting out two paths for us in that verse, two roads, and he's, in he's, he's urging us to choose the correct path. And keep a, in your battle with sin, keep choosing the better slavery. And he gives a contrast between the two slaveries in terms of their outcomes. And he does that so that we realize this is the path that I definitely want to be continuing down, even in those moments when it is hard. And so that little table, simple table on your handout summarizes uh, verse 20 to 23. And uh, the sin row, well, that is what you were before. The God row, that is what you are now if you are a Christian. Uh, interestingly, under the sin row, there was a, a freedom. There was a strange kind of freedom, but it's not one that you would want. It is a freedom from righteousness. It is a freedom from doing good. You didn't care for that. You didn't care about that. And although that autonomy is tempting, ultimately, well, you end up ashamed as a result, as you live this free life. So you put yourself in the scenario where it's your 50th birthday, you've invited, you know, a couple of dozen of your best friends, and they get to see a movie capturing all of the key things that have happened over the past 50 years, things to celebrate, right? 
and celebrating your autonomy if you're in row one. But actually, there's a bunch of stuff on there as you've operated autonomously, which are to do with selfishness and which ultimately are shameful. And worse than that, says Paul, those are the things that uh, we not only feel guilty about, but they're also the things that are deserving of death. They don't deserve to be celebrated. You would ask them to turn off the film. And that's the complete opposite of the path of slavery with God that you are now on if you are a believer. You are free from sin. Instead of shame, there is holiness now. You are set apart for God. Instead of deserving death, there is the gift of eternal life. And so Paul is saying, stay on this path that you have been put on. Because the journey is better. Instead of shame, it is holiness. And the destination is better. Instead of death, it is eternal life. It's not that by, by walking down this road you earn eternal life. Or you earn holiness. No, God, God is what the one who's put you on that road in the first place. He is just saying, if you continue on this road, then that is where the road leads. That is where the road inevitably takes you. Verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And so how does that inspire you to want to serve God 100% and to fight sin? Maybe right now you're feeling like sin is getting on top of you. Uh, it seems impenetrable. It seems hard to break down. Maybe it seems inevitable. It feels like it's just going to steamroll you. Maybe you feel like you've stagnated. Maybe you're just aware that there's been periods of your life as a Christian where you've grown and you've put those things behind you, but now you feel like you've hit a bit of a plateau and you're wondering, what well, is this now the status quo until the end? And Paul wants to say, no. No, we are constantly growing. We are constantly walking down that path. And there is a, instead of the downward spiral that you are on, there is now an upward spiral that you get to be part of. Uh, verse 19, he described a little bit of that a downward spiral. Once you presented your members as slaves to uh, impurity and uh, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Uh, that is the downward spiral. Maybe you can remember your pre-Christian days. The downward spiral in verse 21. And maybe you get a taste of it even now. The things that we did because we felt we could, we could do what we wanted with our time and our bodies and, and other people, and it leads to guilt and shame or some kind of damage or dysfunction. Um, but it doesn't stop there. Because once you've tripped up, actually it leads to more lawlessness because you think, well, it's done. How bad is it if it happens again? So it descends. But now, of course, as you are in an upward spiral, you're able to put a stop there. As you say, no, no, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I'm a slave to God. And I have, and I, and on this path, I go the way of holiness, heading towards eternal life. It is powerfully able to stop the downward spiral and to reverse the direction that you are heading in. We're not talking about being perfect. We're not talking about being holier than now. But it is the experience of living with less angst, uh, fewer stressful situations that you get yourself into. And so Paul would say, uh, remember the direction that you are heading in, holiness not shame. Remember the destination, 
And sin's tactic is to, is to suck you into the present and to cause you to forget the destination. Forget the destination if you're veering back towards this path, it ends in death. And forget the destination of eternal life. It's worth it no matter what the cost you pay now. And Paul is saying, no, push out your horizon. Don't be duped into just focusing on what is in front of you right now. We are playing the long game. And the only reason we are is because that is the path that God has put us on in the Lord Jesus Christ. God owns you, so you are not your own. Uh, but there is one last encouragement to uh, keep dealing with sin by grace. And that's our second point, uh, which will be much shorter. You belong to Jesus, and so you are not your own. You belong to Jesus, so you are, sorry, you are not on your own. Uh, you could describe the difference between law and grace like this. Uh, law is an area that Paul's going to open up a lot in the course of chapter 7, so we're not going to mine the depths of this now. But the difference between law and grace is this. Uh, law says if you obey the rules, you will earn your freedom. Uh, if you don't obey the rules, then you won't. That's the carrot and the stick, right? Grace says you have been given your freedom. Uh, you've been put on that path, and so now live in it. I think the problem is that we're slightly uncomfortable with the freedom that grace gives us. It's like we've got some kind of spiritual agoraphobia. Agoraphobia is the fear of wide open spaces, and you know, all this room to move in. And I think we sometimes prefer the confinement. We prefer the kind of the tick boxes so that we know exactly where we stand. Uh, too much freedom feels, feels a little bit overwhelming. Uh, isn't it going to lead to carnage? And so Paul addresses the Jews, chapter 7, verse 1, I'm speaking to those who know the law, but he's speaking to all of us uh, who like those confines, who like those kind of guardrails. And Paul says that the carrot and the stick are now wonderfully obsolete because the Christian has died to the law. The law which is there to entice you, if you do well, you get the reward, if you don't do well, you get the stick. And he says, you have died to the law. Now you live under grace. And so goes Paul, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. How have we died to the law? Why are we not ruled by the carrot and the stick anymore? Uh, that's the point of verses uh, 1 to 3. And basically, uh, it is because there was a contract, Paul uses the analogy of a marriage, uh, you have a contract between uh, two people. When one party dies, the contract dies. You're no longer under the obligation of that contract anymore. The surviving person is no longer bound. The wife won't be called an adulteress if she remarries after her husband's death. Uh, verse 3. And so now, uh, Paul is saying, in our relationship to the law, we were bound by the law. We were in a, in a contractual uh, arrangement. But in Christ, we have now died to the law. And the result is, it's like a marriage that has been dissolved. You're no longer bound, and we have been released from the law. And we've been released from the law, from the carrying stick, in order to belong to God. Uh, verse 4, although actually that's not quite what he says in verse 4. Not that we're to belong to God. He's more specific than that. 
Um, it's so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Who do we belong to? We belong to the resurrected one. We belong to the one who has gone through death and come to life. We belong to the Lord Jesus. And so when we remain in him, we walk with him, we bear fruit for God. And um, the Apostle Paul, just as an illustration, he applies that to the uh, implies that truth to the battle against sexual sin. He has a case study for you how he applies this. No longer the carrot and the stick, but now in your slavery to God, you're owned by Him, you belong to Him. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six: Flee sexual immorality. Carrot or stick approach: uh, Flee sexual immorality. If you do, then God is going to be very happy. If you don't, God is going to be very cross with you. Okay, that's not how the verse carries on. Um, all other sins a person commits are outside of the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see his logic, not the carrier You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought out of slavery to belong to him. And now you are, now you belong to Jesus as well. You are not on your own. He is in you by his Holy Spirit, the Spirit that you receive from God. I wonder if you can start to sense how powerful that is, how that changes, how that is different from any other way of behavior modification or process of a change, and therefore how much hope there is. It comes down to the love and the intimacy of belonging to God and being owned by Him. I remember reading Andre Agassi's uh, autobiography, and, um, and he had a, uh, a pretty tough process, I guess, uh, growing up in his father's household. His father decided um, early doors, his father wasn't a tennis player, but he decided that his son was going to be the tennis champion. And so he drilled him extremely hard. And uh, as part of that, whenever Andre uh, won, you know, there was some faint praise. Whenever Andre lost, well, then his father treated him with extreme anger. And so that became his motivation for winning. He said there was a trip that he took to California to play one of the tournaments and they had to cross over the Hoover Dam. And he realized at that point, traveling over the dam, that felt like his father's pent-up anger behind the dam. And he was standing below the dam wall. And if he lost, it's like the dam wall was going to break all over him. That was his motivation for winning. Not the joy of winning, but the relief of not having lost. That's what the carrot and the stick was to me. And what the Gospel is saying is that the damn wall of our pent-up sin, our slavery to sin, has burst, it has burst on the Lord Jesus so that we are loved and we are owned by Him. And we belong to Him. That's the path that He has set us on. And why would you not head the way of holiness and eternal life, even today, even this week? For Jesus' name's sake. And so, Lord Jesus, we praise You that our chains are gone. You know that picture, Lord, of being tied to the mast, John Newton, the waves crashing over us. And yet you are the one who 
took our place, that we might be set free. Because our God and Saviour has ransomed me, has ransomed us. And so we pray that you would change us from within. Let it be your work. Not the external work of something harsh and imposed on the outside, but the beautiful work of something done from the inside. And then working its way out. Would that be the testimony to your power at work in us? Not for us, but for your glory. Amen.